How do we flourish? Not just exist, not just survive through life, but how do we really flourish? How do we live the good life? Those are the questions that we are asking through this mini-series on the Gospel of John. In total, it will be a seven-week series. This is the third week in which we are looking into a passage from the Gospel of John. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Uh, This morning, I can't say to you that you can follow along in the worship guide, since there aren't worship guides, so you're going to need a Bible uh, to follow along. You can find one if you did not bring one with you in the Purax in front of you. And again, we're looking at John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Uh, A point that we are making uh, in this series is that Believe it or not, because it might be surprising to some, Jesus did not come to help us become more religious. Jesus was more interested in coming to help us flourish. We keep coming back to this particular verse in John chapter 10. I'm going to be actually focusing in on this verse in a sermon, might be next week. we get basically the purpose statement for why Jesus came from his own words. He said, I came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. That is why Jesus came, not necessarily to make us more religious, but to give us life, to draw us into a fuller, more thriving life. In John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, we encounter a difficult passage It's difficult more so because it was difficult for the disciples who are with Jesus to hear from him what they had just heard. And so I'm going to unpack the context for you as we move along in this sermon, but we're not going to get the immediate uh, context where I'm going to pick up and start reading for the scripture reading. But you're going to recognize right off the bat that Jesus said some things that were apparently really hard for the disciples to hear. Let me read uh, the verses for us. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would, be, who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us meaningfully through this passage. Holy Spirit, that is our prayer, that you would guide us through this passage, that you would cause the very words of Jesus to come to life. I pray that these words that we encounter here would not be abstract. I pray that they would not just be words that we think of as only um, applying to when they were originally spoken. I pray that we would hear these words in a fresh way. I pray that we would believe that these words are for us, that they have import and impact on us this morning. Draw us into the text. Draw us into the life of Jesus. Give us faith to believe, we pray, Holy Spirit. Amen. Holly Ordway is a professor of English and Christian apologetics. An interesting combination, huh? Uh, Christian apologetics, by the way, is basically... An apologist is somebody who makes an apology or somebody who defends the faith. Now, Holly Ordway um, is not the most likely person that you could think of to be performing this role um, in, uh, in a public way. Holly Ordway was once an atheist. She wrote a book called Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. And in this book, she writes this, when I said yes to Christ, I thought I had reached the end of my journey, but I found out that I had merely crested the nearest hill. The road, it seemed, went ever on and on, and I soon realized that the Christian life was not going to be easy. Does that resonate with you at all this morning? Uh, maybe you are one who not too long ago became a Christian. You placed your faith in Jesus. You felt as though you came to life again. And you now, after some time, have come to realize, wow, the Christian life is not easy. Or it could be that you are with us this morning and you are exploring Christianity. You sense that God is up to something in your life. And maybe you would even, if you were honest, say that you're inching closer and closer to professing faith in Christ. But now you're like, wait a second. What did you just say? That it actually gets hard at this point, from this point on? I am saying that. Um, hopefully, over the course of this sermon, I'll, ha- I'll help to alleviate that some. Um, and then for those of you who have been Christians for some time, you've been walking with Jesus, you know this. You know that uh, Christianity is not easy. Let's recognize something. Life is hard, right? Life in general is hard. But sometimes Christianity actually makes life even harder. Have you ever had this thought um, in your life? That, man, in some ways, I feel like if I wasn't a Christian, life would be a little bit easy for me right now in this moment, given what's going on and what I'm going through. Now, I get it. There are all kinds of reasons that we would come up with why um, the alternative would not be easier, but I think you're, you're, you're with me here, that there are those moments where we um, realize that it might be easier right now if I weren't a Christian. Christianity is hard. That's the point of this sermon. Just to put it bluntly, it's simple. Christianity is hard. Let's look at this passage um, to kind of get some insight into why is it hard. And then hopefully at the end, like I said, we'll 
alleviate um, some of that hardness, and you'll receive some comfort um, in the midst of recognizing that Christianity is hard. The context here, that's really important, isn't it? Because as I mentioned, and as you heard me uh, start reading this passage, it just simply begins in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. What did they hear? We have to, we have to know that, don't we? Uh, obviously, we have to know what it was that they heard that they thought was such a hard saying given by Jesus. Now, the context here is that Jesus had just fed 15,000 people. That got their attention. And so Jesus took advantage of having their attention. He preached a sermon. That's maybe the way that, we, that I should go. Start maybe offering a, a big feast before the service, get lots of people here and say, okay, by the way, now that you're here, I'm going to preach a sermon. I would never do that. Um, but Jesus is Lord. He did that. And so he has um, their attention. And so he preaches a sermon, and it's not an easy sermon. He says some really hard things in this sermon. In fact, you already are picking up on it. It wasn't well-received. Now, there's nothing worse for a preacher to preach a sermon that's not well-received. Now, I've never had experience in which um, a number of people have come to me after a sermon and critiqued it, or complained about it, or disagreed with it. But I have had people, you know, here and there, um, not receive a sermon well. I can't imagine um, a whole group of people, at least uh, many people within the group, not receiving it well. But this is what happened here um, in, in Jesus' ministry at this point. He said some confusing things in this sermon. And Jesus continued to press his point throughout the sermon. In verse 66, it says that after many of his disciples turned back and no, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's how not well received it was, that many of his disciples turned their backs on Jesus at this point and walked away from him. Have you ever had that temptation with Jesus? That you've come across a place of Scripture you have encountered um, Jesus' words in a certain place, and you disagree with them. The word is hard. It's a hard saying. And you, your, 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 your pull, your, your inclination is to walk away from Jesus because it's just too hard. You don't want to hear what he has to say. Well, that's what happened here. The 12, the original 12 disciples they remain. But let's get at it. What, what was so hard about it? What did Jesus say? Well, for example, in verse 35, going back into uh, the sermon, Jesus says that he is the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Now think about bread, um, particularly in that day, in that culture. Bread was the primary source of nourishment. So what is Jesus saying? He's basically saying, you cannot live without me. It's a hard saying, don't you think? Um, Jesus continues to say that to me throughout my life, and I continue to say to Jesus, that's really hard. Why is that hard? Well, we're going to get to that, but for now, we'll just say it's because we like to be in charge. 
We like to define the rules. We like to manage life on our own. But Jesus says, you can't live without me. I am the bread of life. I alone satisfy your deepest yearnings and longings that are inside of you. It's a hard saying. And it's a hard saying for us as well. Because ultimately what Jesus is saying is that he alone, he's going to actually use these words in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a hard saying. A hard saying, particularly in the culture in which we find ourselves, because that is not a popular statement to make, that there is only one way to true flourishing, only one way to true life. But make no mistake about it, that is the claim that Jesus makes. I'm not making this claim on behalf of Jesus. Jesus is making this claim for himself. And it's okay to admit that it's hard. This is a hard saying. It was a hard saying for the disciples. But I want us to appreciate how hard it is. It was, again, it wasn't just hard for them. It's hard for us today, given the the cultural environment in which we find ourselves. Now, be honest. This is one of the reasons, if you are a Christian here this morning, it's one of the reasons why you resist talking to people about your faith, isn't it? Because you're afraid of coming across as arrogant. You're you're afraid of this claim. It's almost like, Jesus, why did you have to say this? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I alone can satisfy the deepest longing and yearnings of the heart. Now, it's hard for me to proclaim this um, in the environment in which we find ourselves today. Like I said, it's not a popular statement to make that there is only one way to God. There's only one way to fullness of life. But I have to say it because they're the words of Jesus. And ultimately, there is great freedom and great life in such a statement. And I hope by the end, we'll maybe appreciate some of that. There's something else that, I mean, Jesus says many hard things in this sermon. There's something else that he says that's very hard in verse 42. He refers to God as his father. Now, his audience got what that meant. Nobody before had called God my father in this way. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. It's a hard saying. Jesus is making himself equal with God. This is hard for them to hear because they get the implications of such a statement. And, you know, in the passage that we, um, that we read, we pick up um, from these disciples, they're feeling nervous at this point, aren't they? They have some anxiety. And I think it goes in two ways. One, it's just in terms of their self-understanding of who Jesus is. Because the, the, the sayings that Jesus is saying are, are, are hard not only for um, the, wider, the larger crowd, but they're hard for them. But then also there's this other implication for them as followers of Jesus, as those who are going to represent him, they have to speak those words on behalf of Jesus. And so there's a double hardness for them. There's, it's personally difficult, but then it's also 
ministerially difficult, missionally difficult, because they have to go into um, this context in which they are in to back up the sayings of Jesus and um, believe and declare that they are true. We also get more um, detail of why this sermon was so hard. Um, Look at verse 61. Jesus knows that the disciples are grumbling among themselves. He just got done in the sermon declaring himself to be God. So he, he knows that they're doing this. And in verse 62, or, or uh, right before that, the end of 61, he asks, do you take offense at this? Why would Jesus ask the question? Well, you've, you've, at different places in the Gospels, where we have seen Jesus ask questions. You've probably heard me say this before, but Jesus was the master at asking questions. Um, Jesus loved dialogue. He, he loved drawing people out. So Jesus doesn't just simply preach sermons like he just did. He doesn't just um, give these monologues to people, but he desires to have dialogue. And so he, he recognizes that they're struggling with this, but they're not gonna, they don't seem to want to talk about it openly with Jesus. You notice that? Jesus senses that they're grumbling about it, so he kind of pushes himself into the conversation. Do you take offense at this? Those kinds of questions are hard. Those kinds of questions in life that force our hand. That maybe if we don't know our answer in the moment, They force us to think, to reflect, to process. And so Jesus puts it out for them. I'm not going to worry about them anymore. What about you? Do you take offense at this? And then verse 63, skipping down. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now we are really into the heart of the hard sayings of Jesus. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield um, wrote a book um, called The Secret Life of an Unlikely Convert, something like that. I may have messed up the title. But she talks about her conversion process. And at one point she says, making a life commitment to Christ was not, whoa, did you see that? If you didn't, you didn't miss anything. (laughs) Making a life commitment to Christ was not merely a philosophical shift. It was not a one-step process. It did not involve rearranging the surface prejudices and fickle loyalties of my life. Conversion didn't fit my life. Conversion overhauled my soul and personality. It was arduous and intense. And then she goes on to talk about her fear of easy believism in the Christian church. That sometimes we do act like and pretend like it's easy to believe, but it's not. All right, let's really get to it now. Why ultimately is Christianity so hard? It's because it requires you to die to yourself. That's what makes it so hard. That's why the crowds, that's why these disciples, some of them can only go so far. Jesus, you're asking me to die to myself You're asking me to give control of my life over to another, to you? I can't let go. I can't release that kind of control. That's 
our, our natural disposition. That's our posture in life. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to live for self. And Jesus speaks words into that posture, that heart condition that we have, and there's a tension there. There's a rub. There's a conflict. In verse 62, that I, or, uh, 63 that I just read, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus is basically saying this. Your natural human abilities cannot help you at all. Big picture. As it pertains to finding life, to finding true life, to saving yourself, to fixing what is wrong inside of you, Jesus is saying your human abilities are pointless. They're meaningless. You can't do it. Jesus is attacking self-autonomy. This desire of ours to live independent of other voices, um, to carve out our, our own way. Um, to, it's this drive to separate ourselves from God. This, this is what Jesus is attacking. And, and attacking is the right word to use because he's not relenting. He's preached this hard sermon and he continues to go in deeper and deeper and deeper. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It is only the Spirit of God that can bring a person to life. It is only the Spirit of God that can save a person, that can um, cause a person to flourish. All of our attempts to, to flourish, all of our attempts to find life on our own, at the end of the day, they all are dead end streets. That's what Jesus is saying. And there's this difficult aspect of the gospel. The gospel sometimes drives people away. They don't want to hear it. I want to speak to you this morning if you're not exactly sure if you're a Christian or not, or you know yourself not to be a Christian, and you're getting mad at me. You're like, every line in your sermon is making me more angry and more uncomfortable. Stick with me. Stick with Jesus. Hear him out. There's a reason for which he is making such bold and audacious claims. What if he's telling the truth? What if he's right? So, this is hard, right? It's hard. It's hard for the larger crowds, hard for these disciples. And then it gets down to just the twelve. You know, Jesus recognizes, um, you know, before that, verse 64, but there are some of you who um, do not believe. He knows this to be the case, um, and he's calling them out on it. He, you know, Je Jesus is not superficial. Jesus isn't beating around the bush. He's in attack mode. I would say loving attack mode. He's going after it. And so in verse 66, we get that line. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I think that that is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. What must that have felt like for him? I know that for myself, 
uh, personally, it's really difficult to say hard things to somebody. You know, you know how this is? It's really hard to maybe confront somebody or to say hard things. It, 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 you're vulnerable, right? You're, it, it, there's risk. You're throwing yourself out there, and then when they walk away, when they don't want to hear it, oh, it just adds to the pain. So they walk away. And so Jesus, at this point, turns to the 12, and he asks them that question, do you want to go away as well? Oh, I, could you imagine being one of the 12, hearing that question? Jesus, would you stop it? You've reached your limit of hard sayings today. How can it be that you keep penetrating deeper and deeper? Why are you, you keep narrowing it? Now you're making it about me. Yes, Jesus is making it about me. Jesus is making it about you. Do you take offense at this? Are you going to walk away? Simon Peter, it's funny. It's always Simon Peter, isn't it? In the Gospels, he's always the one to speak out. He's always the one um, that takes the initiative. A lot of times, he's very foolish. But this time, he's not so foolish. Look at Peter's response to Jesus' question, do you want to go away as well? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? If you sense some reservation in this question, I think you're right. Notice what Peter doesn't say. Jesus, man, come on. You shouldn't have to ask that. We're going to be with you until the end. But the way that Peter responds to this by asking a question almost seems to indicate that he's wrestled with this, that this is something that he's thought about, that's something that you've thought about. I'm sure it is. Jesus, you're saying really hard things. I don't like everything that you say because it attacks my self-autonomy, it attacks my autonomy, it, it attacks this drive that I have to do it my own way, but where else will we turn? You have the words of eternal life. One way of thinking about this is that true life, vibrant life, abundant life, accessing it is never easy. It's always hard. It's always hard. This is true for most things in life, isn't it? You know, there's that, that saying, anything worth living for, um, I'm drawing a blank. How does it go? Anything worth living for, it's, you know, it's hard, right? Something like that. Um, I'm terrible at, uh, can't even believe I attempted to do it. I felt like the Holy Spirit was with me. I was going to get it right. Um, I'm better at explaining concepts. So the concept is that anything that is meaningful, there's pain involved to get there. There we go. Um, that's what I'm trying to say. Anything that is of value, of substance, of deep meaning, that's worth it, it's worth suffering for. We expect it to be hard. Anything that is of value is typically not easy to attain, is it? And so I want you to think about it this way, because 
for whatever reason, well, I know what reason it is. It's this drive that we're talking about to live in isolation from voices that would say that they are the way, the truth, and the life. It's that allergy that we have to this kind of thing. But I want you to just think about this because sometimes I think we have this knee-jerk reaction. Oh my goodness, that's really hard. I'm walking away from that, but what if there's actually life there? Why are you you so quick to walk away from this when there are other things in life that you know to be hard, but you you, you, um, move through them? You journey through them because you know there's life to be found. Why would we expect it to be any different with the truth that is at the heart of the universe, the Logos himself, as we saw in the very beginning of John? We shouldn't expect it, especially in light of this nature that we have, for it to be easy. We should actually assume, all right, I don't know where this is going to go with Jesus. I don't know where this process is going to lead me, but I'm not going to just walk away because it's initially hard. I'm going to make my way through it. It seems like Peter has really wrestled with this question. But something has happened to Peter. Through this hard process of belief, there's nowhere else that he could turn. Why? Because he is utterly convinced that Jesus is really who he's claiming to be. There's something different about Jesus. Maybe part of the difference is is that Jesus actually loves me so much that he's willing to say hard things even when it drives me crazy. That actually sometimes, oftentimes, is a sign of love. And so again, why with Jesus do we have this knee-jerk reaction and say, oh, that's hard. He must not really be kind and love. No, he says hard things because he loves us so deeply. And he desires for us to know the truth and experience life through him. There is reservation in this response of Peter because sometimes trusting God is really hard. What are the alternatives? Where else would we go? Where else would we turn? You know, what were some of those voices that Peter and the other disciples were hearing, other religious teachers throughout their day? And it's very clear that they didn't, they weren't connecting with Peter. Again, there's something different about Jesus. And so, what if we embrace the exhaustion that we feel from all of the voices of our culture trying to speak into our lives, offering us life, and we know that there's not life to be found there? Why? Because we've tried it. We've tried it. We've obeyed this voice. We've listened to that voice, and it's not satisfied the deepest longing and yearnings of our heart. And let me challenge you with this. Don't go looking for all of the easy voices because the voices that are most real are voices that are hard, voices that speak hard truth into our lives. And so for Peter, there's nobody that he's ever encountered like Jesus that has spoken like him, that has acted like him. All right. We need to alleviate some of this, don't we? Be really bad. I, I, pers- I mean, there was some good in that, I would hope. But if I just ended there, Christianity's hard. 
Um, go out there and try to live it out some more. That, we, don't want, we don't want to end there, so let's not end there. There's a question that is asked um, earlier in this sermon. Then they said to him, this is verse uh, 28 of chapter 6, then they said to him, what must, we be, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, I want to contrast this with the statement that we saw Jesus make in verse 63. So again, let me read um, the question that's asked of him in the, in the midst of this sermon. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And then back to chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We're beginning to come uh, uh, into the difference between Christianity and everything else. Our default question, our natural question that we ask is what? It begins with, what must I do? Tell me. We look to the voices in our culture, in the world around us. Please, just tell me what I must do. Tell me the steps that I must take, and I'll take them. Tell me what to do. And Jesus comes to us saying, I'm going to tell you what I came to do for you. Peter says that they have, that he has come to believe, that he's come to know. And I, I think that this, there, there's some logic here. Because, again, he begins with, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I don't want to make too much of this, but it seems like there's a sense in which belief precedes the knowing, or at least all of the knowing. Now, this isn't um, anti, it's not irrational, it's not anti-intellectual. Um, I, I think that if you spend enough time around City Church, you know that um, in many ways we um, embrace the intellect and the logic of Christianity. We believe that there are solid grounds, rational grounds for believing. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, the flesh can't take you over the line. Only the Spirit gives life. And so an implication of this could be, especially if you're on the fence with Christianity, try to start believing. Now, you can't ultimately produce that belief yourself, but step into the story a little bit. Begin to live as if this might be true. There's a good chance that the Spirit of God is then going to come flooding into your life to make you new, to open your eyes to see things that you never saw before. I'm, you know, I think back to one of my favorite movies, uh, The Field of Dreams. I've probably used this before. If I have, it's been a few years, so I'm good. A few years, there's an expiration date on illustrations, and then you can recover them. But it's... If you've seen the movie, you know the storyline. Um, guy builds a baseball field, and then he uh, starts seeing these players from the past um, coming out of the cornfields to play on the field, but his brother-in-law in particular can't see it, and it's driving him crazy. He just wished that he could see it. Please, why can't you see what I see? It's right there. And then 
without going off on a tangent, something happens, and the brother-in-law um, sees it, and he says something like, why didn't you tell me about this all along? And his brother-in-law is saying, I was trying to, but something had to happen. Put yourself in a position, maybe, for something to happen. Open yourself up to faith, because what will happen is the knowledge will begin to follow. Things will start to make sense. That's how it has happened for me in my life. But the heart of what is going on here, this is where the alleviation and the the, the relief comes in. Yes, ultimately, this is a really hard saying from Jesus. It's difficult. This basically this claim that he's the only way and that there's nothing that we can do um, to save ourselves. We can't prove ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. We can't make ourselves right in life. Only Jesus can. That's a hard saying. But it's the best saying. It's the most liberating saying. Because if you are willing to be honest, even if it's just only for a, a, a moment in your life, you would have to say, he's right. Man, he's right. It's true. My human abilities have not enabled me to figure life out. They have not enabled me to satisfy the deepest longing and yearnings of my heart. He's right. And he comes to us saying, here's the good news. You don't access flourishing and access life through what you do. It's, through, it's believing in what I've done for you. And this is the message that he is trying to ingrain into his disciples, and he wants to ingrain into us. And this is why, even though it's hard, it's good, because it's true. And, and, and ultimately, this is the way that we access true, abundant, real Life. It's not by asking what must we do and trying to do it. It's through believing, through trusting, through having faith in who Jesus claimed to be and what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection to remove our sin from us and to bring us into relationship with God the Father. There's a, a guy named Francis Spufford. Uh, he wrote a book called Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. He tells a story um, about um, basically a life or a a night-long argument that he had with his wife back in 1997. Um, And he, he says this, We got up, that's the next morning, and she went to work. I went to a cafe and nursed my misery along with a cappuccino. I could not see any way out of sorrow that did not involve some obvious self deception some wishful lie about where we'd got to. And then the person serving in the cafe put on Mozart's clarinet concerto, the middle movement, the adagio. If you don't know it, it is a very patient piece of music. It too goes round and round in its way, essentially playing the same tune again and again. On the clarinet alone and then with the orchestra, clarinet and then orchestra, lifting up the same unhurried Lilt of solitary around, and then backing it with a kind of messageless tenderness in deep waves when the strings join in. It is not strained in any way, 
It does not sound as if the music is struggling to lift the weight it can only just manage. Yet at the same time, it is not music that denies anything. It offers a strong, absolutely calm rejoicing, but it does not pretend there is no sorrow. On the contrary, it sounds as if it comes from a world where sorrow is perfectly ordinary, but still there is more to be said. I had heard it lots of times, but this time it felt to me like news. It said, everything you fear is true, and yet, and yet, everything you have done wrong, you have really done wrong, and yet, and yet, the world is wider than you fear it is, wider than the repeating rigamores in your mind, and it has this in it as truly as it contains your unhappiness. Shut up and listen and let yourself count just a little bit on a calm that you do not have to be able to make for yourself because here it is, freely offered. There's more going on here than what you deserve or don't deserve. There is this as well. And it played the tune again with all the cares in the world. True words of eternal life, truth, takes into account both the hard sayings, the hard things of life, the ugliness about who we are, doesn't deny that, but it also at the same time holds alongside of it grace. Grace. Undeserved favor. That because of what Jesus has done, despite our wrongness, despite our sin, despite the ugliness, we can live freely holding the tension together because it's not based on what we have or haven't done, but it's based on the gift of another. We can trust somebody who has done that for us. His words are eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, there are so many places in your word that are hard, hard to believe, hard to understand. They're confusing for us. And they're offensive to us because we want to be able to believe that we can save ourselves. But I pray that you would soften us. I pray that you would break us. I pray that increasingly you would help us to not only see, but to embrace the fact that we can't do it on our own. May we receive your words with faith. May we receive the grace, the undeserved favor that is ours through faith because of what you have done for us. We thank you that you've provided a way for us, a way for us to not deny what is true and ugly about ourselves, but to hold it there, to, uh, to, to believe that it's true, but to also believe that we are deeply loved and free because of what you've done. We praise you for this. We praise you for the life that you have given to us through the Spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.